Hey, everyone. This is Michael O'Connell. The It's All Journalism team is taking some time off for the holidays. So we're replaying our most popular episode for 2022. Stay tuned at the end for an update with Tia as she reflects on the now two-year anniversary of January 6th. Thanks and enjoy the episode. January 6th is just one example of what has caused us to have to grapple with these realities in being a journalist today and what does that mean and and how we might have to shift if we want to not just be good at our job, but if we feel like preserving our democracy. Welcome to a special episode of It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell. This episode is being published on January 6, 2022, the one-year anniversary of the storming of the U.S. Capitol by supporters of former President Donald Trump. Tia Mitchell is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the chair of the National Association of Black Journalists' Political Task Force. She was at the Capitol one year ago, covering the certification of the November 2020 election. Tia, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so before we get talking about January 6th, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you become a journalist? What got you interested in the career and how'd you end up at the as the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution? Well, I always tell people that I became a journalist young. When I was in the second grade, we had like an assignment to write a book. And, you know, most kids write fiction. And my book was actually nonfiction. It was called All About Fish and talked about how I thought fish were beautiful, but I also enjoyed to eat them when my mother fried them. And it won the award at my school, a school-wide award for like second graders or whatever. And so I consider that my first journalism award. And I've always been very interested in telling true stories, even from that young age, and interested in consuming true stories, even from a young age. I went to school at Florida A&M University, and that's where I got my undergraduate degree, and I've been in the field ever since. And um, I will say maybe five years into my career, I really realized that political journalism in particular is what most interested me as far as what type of beats that I felt that I was best at and and really made me excited about journalism. So what is it about political journalism that you like? I think what I like is political journalism is a mixture of trying to understand people in their motivations, you know, particularly when it comes to people who either want to get an elected position or who are in an elected position You know, they're real people with real experiences and backgrounds and aspirations that factor into the decisions they make. But at the same time, those decisions have everyday implications, particularly the more granular the level of politics, the more that those decisions have not only a real impact on people's lives, but often an immediate impact on people's lives. And all of that excites me to try to help readers at home understand what's going on and feel like these elected officials aren't just some kingmakers tucked away, but are like real people that if our democracy works the way it's supposed to, they're supposed to hear from their constituents and they're supposed to be making decisions that reflect the will of their constituents. And that only happens really when you have journalism 
working properly, that's in the fabric of our democracy. So I like, you know, doing my best to be a part of that. Yeah, well, you must be in heaven because you're you're in Washington, D.C., covering Capitol Hill for a Georgia newspaper. And Georgia has certainly been involved in the political narrative of the last two or three years in particular. So, well, first, before we get much further, tell me a little bit about the National Association of Black Journalists Political Task Force. What, how'd you get involved in that? And what's the purpose of the group? I've been involved with the National Association of Black Journalists for a long time. But as I began to progress in my career as a political journalist, I know that the National Association of Black Journalists advocates for its members and had been very vocal about the lack of diversity, particularly when it came to uh, major networks and their teams covering national elections. But I thought that NABJ, in addition to its advocacy and pointing out the lack of diversity, could do more when it came to improving that pipeline so that there are people who not only are trained and willing to serve in these roles, but that know the right way to be connected with the people who are hiring for these roles. Because again, as someone who has wanted to be in political journalism for a long time, I didn't necessarily know how to connect with hiring editors and larger news organizations. I went to school at a state school in Florida. My whole career was in Florida. You know, those folks that went to school in the Northeast or worked for media organizations that were based in DC and New York, I wasn't on their radar. And so I worked with the leadership of the National Association of Black Journalists to reinvigorate the political task force, which was created by Black journalists. After President Obama was elected, they realized that there was a Black man in the White House, but the press corps was almost completely white. And that was the genesis of the NABJ political task force. But even when it came more recently, there was still a lack of diversity. So what we do in the task force is we work to improve that pipeline by training, doing trainings for political journalists who are Black, We do networking events for political journalists who are Black so that hiring managers know the applicant pool that's out there. And we really try to be that bridge. That's great. We did did have an NABJ, I think the the president on the podcast before. It's a a great organization. And, you know, and you're an example of somebody who, with their help, has been sort of able to advance their career and at the same time turn it around and help in, a, in another way, you know, help sort of continue its mission. How'd you end up at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and on Capitol Hill? Well, like I mentioned before, I spent most of my career in Florida, and it just got to a point where I was ready for a change and I wanted to move to a bigger market. And actually, a friend of mine was scrolling on Twitter and came across a job announcement for the AJC. He is not a journalist, but he knew of course, me and my career and is a good friend and said, I know you're looking for a change. You should apply for this job. And that's how I connected with the AJC. I didn't get that job, but they gave me a different job covering local politics. And that was in late 2017 when I moved to the AJC. But in 2018, I was on the local government team, but their politics team that covers state and national government needed help because we were in an election year and there was this candidate named Stacey Abrams and they wanted help covering the final weeks of her campaign for governor. And so I went on the campaign trail and covered Stacey Abrams in the final weeks of the campaign through election day and through two weeks of lawsuits and and counting that 
confirmed Brian Kemp was the winner, but also Stacey Abrams raised a lot of questions about how elections are run in Georgia. And that's what really connected me with the politics team. And so the next year, their Washington correspondent role was open and I applied and and they opened it up. There were applicants who were already in Washington. There were applicants from outside the AJC. But I put my hat in the ring and said, I don't have experience in Washington, but I do have experience covering politics at all different levels and really working hard to make sure coverage is accessible to readers and speaks to what readers want to know about the political process. And so I became the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Washington correspondent in late 2019. And it's really nice that they, you know, the company was able to hire from within and, you know, recognizing you that you didn't have the, you know, the on the ground experience covering Washington politics, but they recognized that you had this, this ability to do it. So tell me, what about the, the beat? You know, what's a typical day like for you? So I tell people my beat is to cover national politics for a Georgia audience. As a result, I focus a lot on our Georgia delegation which has changed even in the two years I've been in the role. Both of our U.S. senators are now Democrats. They were both Republicans when I started this job. We have a six Democrats, eight Republicans split in our House delegation right now. For example, you know, when we talk about voting rights or Build Back Better or infrastructure, I cover these votes, but I focus on what's in the bills for Georgia. And I focus a lot on how our Georgia lawmakers are weighing in on the issues. I also do cover, you know, the Biden administration at large, but again, I focus on what it means for a Georgia audience. And you certainly had a lot to, from a Georgia standpoint, to write about between, you know, the 2020 election and uh, the inauguration. So in sort of the lead up to January 6th, what, you know, what were you writing? What were you sort of focusing on? So remember that Georgia had its Senate runoffs that ended on January 5th. And then on January the 3rd, the new Congress was sworn in. So I spent New Year's Eve and up until January 2nd in Atlanta covering the runoffs and the candidates And I flew back to D.C. because we needed to cover the new Congress. And we had four new members sworn in, two Democrats, two Republicans. And then on the 5th, I was in Washington, but I watched from afar our elections. And we saw that Warnock won that night. And by the next morning, it was clear that Ossoff was also going to win. So leading up to January 6th, not just my eyes, but the eyes of the nation in a lot of ways were on Georgia because of the Senate runoffs. And then we also knew that the Republican members of Georgia's congressional delegation, most of them had signed on to support former president, well, then President Trump in challenging Joe Biden's win in Georgia. So I had been covering their comments about challenging the electoral college vote counting process on January 6th. So going into that day, that is what I was prepared for is, you know, we have eight Republicans in the House. At the time, I knew at least half of them, plus Senator Kelly Leffler, who 
had promised Donald Trump in her last campaign rally before the runoffs. She had promised to challenge these electoral college votes, giving our delegation the right coalition they needed to move forward with an official challenge. People may not know that in the past years, there have been symbolic challenges. But if you don't have a senator and a member of the House willing to challenge the same state at the same time, it's just symbolic. It doesn't really go through. But what was different this year is, you know, going into that joint session of Congress, Georgia and a handful of other states had the support in both chambers to actually move forward with a formal challenge, which creates its own procedure. Okay. So we understand that the there was a lot of uh, political machinations going on based on sort of interpretations of things in the Constitution, court cases and things that happened before. So when you went in on the morning of January 6th, the, the story you were thinking you were going to write was going to be the, you know, the Georgia delegation is going to challenge. Yes. Um, do you have any concerns at that point of, you know, anything beyond the chamber, any sense that there was going to be any sort of violence or disruption you know, outside of you know, just the fact that people are going to be standing up and, and making these accusations in Congress? I was prepared and concerned about violence in the streets. So that morning when I showed up to work, all the streets were shut down and all the businesses had closed and parking garages were closed. But it was in anticipation of like, there was this big rally that we know Trump supporters were going to have near the White House, but there were also rallies that were permitted or were expected near the Capitol. And there was concern that those could possibly grow violent and there could be counter protesters. And just there was concern that, you know, it could be hard getting in and out of the Capitol. That is where going into January 6th, I thought the trouble marks were. It's, you know, would it be dangerous in the streets of Washington because the protests turned violent or because again, protesters and counter-protesters began to clash with, with one another. The first thing that I did when I got to the Capitol, and I'm very active on social media, so the first thing I posted, I stopped at the Senate chamber because I wasn't sure Kelly Leffler was going to show up. She had just lost, you know, so it's like she made a promise to Donald Trump, but did she really feel obligated to follow through when she wasn't even going to be in the Senate anymore? So the first thing I did was stop at the Senate chamber. And in fact, Kelly Leffler was at her seat. And so I tweeted that if you're wondering, Kelly Leffler's here and it looks like this is happening. And then on my way to the House chamber, which is where I was going to be stationed for the day, I looked out of the window and the window was facing the east side of the Capitol, which is the side facing the Supreme Court. And there were demonstrators outside, but they were behind a um, of fence, fencing. And there were a couple hundred people. And I posted a tweet. I said, here's a picture of some protesters. It looks pretty peaceful out there. Now, what I didn't know was at that exact moment, if I had looked out of the west side, it just, the way the Capitol is set up and the way the hallways are set up, there aren't a lot of windows. And the hallway I was in, there are no windows looking out to the west side. If I had looked out the west side at that exact moment, I would have seen the marchers headed toward the Capitol, but I didn't know that. Yeah, coincidentally, uh, <laughs> I was the covering Washington for a patch at that time. And, and the editorial board had sort of made 
a decision uh, that they weren't going to send any reporters in to cover what was going on on the mall, the National Mall, but I was assigned to cover the speech remotely. And then if there was anything that sort of developed or it was sort of beyond that, we would rely on, you know, AP reporters who are on the ground, and, you know, make that part of our, our coverage. So, so my, my personal experience was, was very different than yours in the sense that, you know, I watched the video, I wrote a story while it was going on, I reported what was said and what the intention was, I posted it, and then actually I, I went into a series of phone interviews and when I came back about an hour, hour, an hour and a half later, things had changed rather dramatically. And so then it became a matter of sort of monitoring social media, monitoring news reports, trying to cover the different, different aspect of it. Okay, so you, you see the protesters outside the east side of the building. What happens next? So again, because at the time I thought the protest was peaceful, I went to the House chamber and I got set up because they take these states in alphabetical order. And again, usually there's, you know, you know you'll say Alaska. Um, Alaska has six votes for President Trump. Vice President Pence is presiding. And he said, you know, is everything in order? Looks like everything's in order. Then he went down the list alphabetically when he got to Arizona, which was the first state we knew that was gonna be challenged. And he said, Arizona has, you know, 12 votes for Joe Biden or whatever, I'm making up the number. He said, does everything look in order? And then there was, you know, some lawmakers from Arizona said, no, we don't think it's in order. We would like to challenge Arizona. And Pence said, do you have, you know, a member of the Senate willing to support this challenge? And they say, yes, we do. And here's the document that they hand in with the correct signatures. And Vice President Pence said, okay, well, this is an official challenge. Each member body of Congress will now go back to its respective chambers and spend two hours in debate and vote and we'll take it from there. And so I was paying close attention to how that unfolded because alphabetically Georgia was going to be the second state that went through this process. So I was paying a lot of attention to how this was unfolding for Arizona just to make sure I would be ready when came Georgia's time. And so I was paying attention, but again, not closely. But what sticks out to me that day is, again, in hindsight, knowing what was happening at the time, they spent over an hour on the floor debating as if nothing was happening outside. And I mean, just regular debate. Each side has an hour and they go back and forth. A Republican speaks for a little bit, and then a Democrat speaks for a little bit. And you've got a floor manager saying, this person gets 30 seconds, this person gets one minute. And it was very routine. And the first indication that something was off is there was a lockdown at a nearby office building in the Capitol complex. And, you know, some type of security issue. And there weren't a lot of details, but you know, that was the first like, OK, there's a security issue. Things aren't quite right. And then we were told that things were getting a little bit out of hand outside the Capitol. So they were going to lock down the chamber as a precaution. So the staff that works with media said, you need to get everything that you need because we're going to lock the doors. And once we lock you in, you can't leave. So go use the restroom and be prepared to be locked in for a little bit. 
but still everyone's very calm and there's still regular debate going on on the floor. Did you reach out to your paper? Did you reach out to your editors or were you monitoring on social media? At that point, no. I was posting on social media and I was in contact with my editor. But again, I think it was things are a little bit weird, but inside the chamber, things were very normal. Things took a turn when they escorted leadership out, you know, that whole line of succession. And you could tell people in the line of succession, security kind of came and got them and and hustled them out of the chamber. And that's when people, you could tell members of Congress were starting to get text messages and tempers started to flare. And you could hear people shout, tell Trump to send your people home. This is your fault. And then on the other side, Republicans would say, oh, now you want the police to protect you. You were defunding the police before. Now you want the police to come protect you. And like I said, tempers started to flare and, you know, the debate had to stop. And it was like, okay, let's just everyone calm down. Everyone just chill. We're not going to pretend like we're going to debate Arizona right now. We're going to pause that. But everyone just kind of chill, calm down. We're locked in. Everything's fine. And then they said, hey, members of Congress, there are gas masks underneath your seats. You might want to go ahead and grab your gas masks and put them on because there are people in the rotunda. And just in case we have to use tear gas on those people, we want you guys to be safe. And again, there are no windows in the gallery. So even the doors are kind of frosted. So there really isn't a way to see what's going on. Maybe the members of Congress on the main floor, because their one main door leads to the rotunda. But I was up in the gallery, which is like in the upper level. So we couldn't see what was going on. And they said there are people in the rotunda. I'm thinking a couple of people, you know, maybe breached the Capitol. That was my mental picture that maybe a dozen people, you know, being wild and crazy. And when they said, we might use tear gas on them. That was what I was thinking. Even that's a little strange when you think, you know, I've been in, I've been in the Capitol before. You, you, you know, you're there every day, almost every day, and you have to go through security. Did it seem strange to you that there were people in the rotunda at all? Yeah. I mean, remember that even before January 6th, the Capitol had been closed since March 2020 to visitors. And we weren't used to people who didn't work at the Capitol, weren't members of Congress or weren't media getting inside the building. That just, you know, for almost a year, people couldn't get inside the Capitol. And also, again, D.C. was so locked down that I didn't think it was possible or I, I won't even say I didn't think it was possible. I didn't contemplate the possibility of people breaking inside the Capitol, because again, I didn't contemplate that would be something, even in the name of protesting the outcome of the election, I didn't think that was part of anyone's game plan for that day. I thought they would protest outside and that it could possibly get violent outside. I didn't think that that part of the game plan was entering the Capitol. That just wasn't on my radar. Okay. So... (laughs) Wasn't on your radar. The lawmakers are told to to get their um, masks. People in line to succession are shuffled out. Is the debate still going on about Arizona or? No, they had that was stopped. And 
I would guess there were probably 100 to 200 members of Congress actually in the chamber. And so there was just a lot of murmuring, you know, I mean, it was at that point, it was confusion and anger, quite honestly. And then us in the media, we're up in the gallery watching it. I'm still posting on social media, trying to give people a play-by-play of what's going on. They gave us gas masks, so we're trying to figure out how to put on a gas mask. And not too long after that, they did start evacuating members of Congress from the chamber. The way the House chamber is set up, there are several doors on each level, but only one door was available for evacuation for obvious reasons. On the floor, that's not a problem because you can go to the center and from the center, you can easily access that door. From the gallery level where we were, it's not set up like that. Where you sit, you're supposed to access a specific door. So to get to a different door, it's really not set up to easily get to other doors that aren't closest to where you sit. So it took a little while. Even before that, I'll say they were evacuating the first floor. We heard a loud bang. And that was probably when it took a turn for me. And that loud bang we now know was a police officer um, using his weapon shooting Ashley Babbitt. At the time, I didn't want to assume. So when I posted on social media, I just said it was a loud bang. But it was pretty clear it was a gunshot. And that was when it was clear that this breach was serious and and physical and violent. And so they're evacuating the house chamber and trying to evacuate us from the gallery, but it's just taking a little longer because the gallery, again, was using one door that wasn't easily accessible. And so eventually they said, it's no longer safe to keep evacuating people. You guys are gonna have to just hunker down here in the gallery. And we could hear people banging on the doors trying to get in. And we could see, you know, there's that picture that's very recognizable now of a couple of members of Congress and Capitol Police officers barricading the main door to the rotunda with the piece of furniture. And you see people breaking through the door and in the lawmaker, the Capitol Police have their service weapon pulled and are trying to keep people from coming in that door into the chamber. And I saw that with my own eyes because I was up in the gallery watching it happen. And I'll never forget, you know, U.S. Representative Lisa Blunt Rochester from Delaware was just praying, just praying, praying, praying so loudly. And I was going to say she was praying in a way that was not just emotional, but from a place of like, If you've ever heard someone pray in a way where they are begging God to make a change in that moment, that was her prayer. It was not partisan. It was not about her. It was about a global help us deliver us from this moment. And that every time I think about that moment, the prayer is what makes me emotional. So you were tweeting up through this. You know, you mm-hmm. still were doing your role as a journalist, you know, being I'm on the ground, this thing is happening, I'm reporting what's happening. Where was your head at, you know, as a journalist, but also as, as a human being who might be concerned about their safety? Yeah, so people always ask me that, and I tell them it was scary, 
but I did not have time to feel scared. You know, it was just the adrenaline of being in journalist mode and trying to report what happened. I was very cognizant of trying to be present and sober minded so that I could recall details and accurately report details. I was just very much in journalist mode. I'm not saying that's the healthiest (laughs) thing, but that was kind of where I went. The only thing I did selfishly was I called my mom when they said, hey, we can't keep evacuating. We're going to have to lock you guys in the chamber and we don't know how long you're going to be in here. I called my mom because I knew she was at work and my mom does not have social media. So when people have questions about me, they pick up the phone and call my mom and ask her questions. And what I didn't want is her phone to start ringing off the hook saying, is Tia okay? She's locked in the chamber and her being at work, disconnected from social media, not knowing what's going on. So I called her at work and she had no idea. And I said, hey, mom, just wanted to let you know I'm okay. She was like, okay, hon, you're doing all right. And I said, yeah, I'm at work. But if anyone calls you, just know I'm okay. And she was like, okay, well, enjoy your day. And so I knew she had no idea. I'm sure she had questions um, later. <laughs> she did later. And, and again, it helps because right. when people started calling her, she had heard from me. And so at least she didn't freak out the way she would have if people calling her. And then, you know, because I didn't know, you know, was I going to be able to use my phone and things like that. So I wanted to at least call my mom. But other than that, I was just in reporter mode. And, you know, my thread is still on Twitter at AJC on Washington. It's linked. There's an article I wrote for our paper about my experiences that day. And my thread is linked in that article but it's there and you'll just see, like, I was very matter of fact. And I tried to be rooted in reality. So again, I didn't say I just heard a gunshot. I said, I heard a loud bang or, you know, we could hear people banging on the doors or we could see the commotion when people were trying to break in. Mm -hmm. So you were locked in the chamber. How long were you locked in the chamber? Ultimately, it wasn't that long before they cleared a path. And I would say maybe The second time when they locked us in after they couldn't evacuate everyone, it was maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And they came back and said, okay, we've cleared a path and we can get you guys out. And the final group was maybe, I would say there were maybe 20 members of Congress, most of them Democrats, only because we were exiting through a door on the Republican side So Democrats, again, had further to navigate to get to the door to exit. But I think there might have been a couple of Republicans in that group, too. There were Republican lawmakers who stayed below on the main level to help Capitol Police defend the chamber. And then there were, you know, maybe a dozen or so journalists like me. And so they came in and got us and let us out the door. And we kind of had to walk past some of the rioters who were They had been subdued and they were basically laying belly down on the floor, being held at gunpoint. And that's kind of the scene we had to walk past as we evacuated. Did you return to the Capitol later on when had been able to clear it and then Congress reconvened? Absolutely. So, you know, for several hours... We eventually evacuated to a, um, an office building and 
members of Congress are kind of sequestered in a room and then kind of everyone else, journalists, staff, were in a cafeteria. And that's when like the TVs were on CNN and to be able to see what was going on outside the Capitol in those first images of the rotunda, that's when I first saw it is when we evacuated and I was in that cafeteria. I also, you know, I hadn't eaten that day because my plan was to eat between Arizona and Georgia, not a good plan. And so all of us were like foraging for like vending machines and snacks because of course the cafeteria wasn't open. And, you know, I just kind of took, I took an hour or so to like drink a Red Bull and eat a Snickers and kind of like regroup mentally. But then it was back to reporting mode. I did a Facebook live and a Twitter you know, the Twitter live stream to talk about what happened and answer questions. And I dictated a story to my coworker, Tamar, to get that on the website. And I'm talking with my editors and they are, they're che- people are checking on me, both people at the AJC, people in my personal life, family and friends, and people are checking on me and I'm trying my best to respond. But we had to wait because number one, we couldn't leave because it was chaos around the Capitol at that point. But Eventually, it became clear that they were going to try to go back in and finish that work, which I, I, to this day, feel is very noble. And I think, again, the narrative around January 6th, particularly from Republicans, has shifted greatly in unfortunate and inaccurate ways in the year that has passed. But in that moment, they were very unified in that we cannot let these people who wish to keep us from carrying out our democratic duties, we cannot let them win. We've got to go in. We've got to finish this work. So they did. And again, not just a journalist there that day, but a journalist from Georgia who needed to report what was going on. I had to go back in. Now, another thing that happened was Kelly Leffler, as a result of the riot, changed her mind. And so the narrative for Georgia changed because of the riot, because she was no longer willing to contest Joe Biden's win because of the violence. You have to remember the Senate chamber when it was breached was empty, but senators evacuated within minutes of that happening. So, you know, the senators had a close call, just like the members of the House who were in the chamber did. The difference, I think, is that most of the senators were in the chamber at the time. Anyways, Kelly Leffler changed her mind. So then we had breaking news from that even before the session reconvened. We covered the breaking news of Kelly Leffler changing her mind. And therefore, we weren't sure if Georgia, if, if they would find another senator willing to take her place. So that created new intrigue around what was going to happen with Georgia. But yeah, we went back in. You know, Arizona, they still had to go back and finish out their two hours of debate time for Arizona. And then they took a vote. And, you know, in the House, Democrats have a majority. So there was never a question that the challenge was going to be successful because, you know, Democrats have the majority in the House and they were not going to stand for it. But you still had to go through this process. And so that's what happened with Arizona. They went through the process, took a vote. It was not successful 
in the House and not successful in the Senate either, quite frankly, even with a, a majority of Republicans in the Senate, it was not successful. And then they had to come back in and start back up with the roll call of states. And then it got to Georgia and U.S. Rep. Jody Heiss led several members of Georgia's delegation in saying we would like to contest Joe Biden's electoral college votes in Georgia. And Vice President Pence asked, do you have a senator to sign your paperwork? And Representative Heiss had to say, well, we did, but we don't anymore. And then Vice President Pence said, well, you don't have the proper procedure. It's not a correct challenge. Joe Biden's electoral college votes in Georgia will stand. And then he commenced to going down the roll call. So I stuck around to write that article. I didn't stay till the very end, but I stuck around just kind of to make sure that it was going to an end without further surprises. So I think I stayed till maybe midnight, one o'clock in the morning before I decided to head on home. Did you think that you were going to be at the Capitol that late when you started the day? I had planned for a late day because, again, each state that was going to be contested was going to be two hours of debate individually. And I think there were Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, which still got contested, maybe Michigan. I think there were four states total that we expected to be challenged. And so you know, even outside of the pomp and circumstance of the day, you were still looking at up to eight hours of just floor debate. And in House time, two hours of floor debate, even Senate time, two hours of floor debate is rarely 120 minutes. You know, it it can vary because of all their interesting things they can do with how time is counted. So I expected it to be a late night. You know, I don't know if my game plan all along was to stay until the bitter end. But again, I, I was expecting Georgia to make history as its electoral college votes being challenged in a way that we're not used to seeing that day. So, you know, as you describe it, I mean, you, you kept your head, you did your job as a, as a journalist, you tweeted throughout, you did Facebook live, you did a, a Twitter live, you wrote stories for the web, you wrote a, a story based on what the Georgia delegation did. So you did a lot that day and you did a lot of breaking news type things, you know, not just, you know, keeping people updated, but also <laughs> reporting on the things that are sort of unraveling in front of you or, or happening in front of you. So, you know, a year out, what is your, what is your perspective about that day? A year out, my perspective of that day is that well, again, something that I mentioned before is how Republicans have tried to reshape and shift what actually happened that day. And that's not something that I expected. You know, you've heard Republicans try to now say that the people arrested and charged with crimes on January 6th, they were just, you know, people trying to uphold democracy and the fact that they're in prison now, they're being unfairly prosecuted. And that's not true. These were people who were participating in a violent riot that breached the heart of our democracy and they were trespassing and they were assaulting police officers and they were trying to disrupt a joint session of Congress. And that wasn't just exercising your first amendment, right? 
to protest or to say you don't agree with the decision the government makes. So that's been something that's happened over the last year. And then again, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, do you think Capitol Police should have done something better and they weren't prepared? And, you know, I think that as a journalist, I'm okay with letting the, there are still ongoing investigations, even outside of the January 6th committee, which is looking more at the the political leadership and involvement, but there are inspector general reports and special committees that are looking into the security aspect. And I think that does need to be studied and that will come out, but I don't have strong opinions of that day. It's just something that I've chosen not to have, you know, as a journalist, I can keep myself neutral when it comes to trying to decide what I think security should or shouldn't have done. I will say that, again, something that I, to reiterate, the breach of the Capitol was not fathomed, I don't even think, by the security forces in place. And again, perhaps that was an oversight, but I think it's clear that it was not fathomed. I compare it in some ways to 9-11. You know, prior to 9-11, few of us fathomed that commercial airplanes would be used as missiles to take down skyscrapers. That just, you know, unless you were a very specialized counterintelligence, counterterrorism person, that just wasn't on your radar when you went to the airport that somebody might, you know, use this airplane to enact an act of terror. And so I think that for better or for worse, January 6th opened our eyes that like people who are unhappy with the government won't just stop at protesting outside its doors and with the right encouragement, the right coordination, the right messaging can be encouraged, influenced, motivated to try to launch an insurrection inside the Capitol. And that's something that we now have to grasp as part of the possibilities in our nation. And it's a really profound thought when you consider it. One thing that you said as you're describing your approach to covering the event, your mind was in journalism mode. And then later you talk about that you're trying to maintain the neutrality that you you have as a, as a journalist. But one thing I identify with is this idea of in the moment, for better or worse, you're, you know, you're reporting it, but you're also a witness to what's going on. And so it's very important for you to pay attention to what's going on because at some point, you know, a year later, somebody on a podcast is going to ask you about it. But, but, you know, as, as people get further away from it and they sort of lose understanding or, or easily manipulated to think different ways about or reinterpret the events. You know, there are people like you who are on the ground who are looking and witnessing this event and continue to report it. And how is the the raid on the Capitol? Has that affected your reporting at all, you think, or the way you approach your journalism? I don't know if it's, it's also, these are hard questions because (laughs) I, I think I'm still processing. It took me a while to process and get out of journalism. mode. It probably took me like, The day after the insurrection, we were still covering the insurrection and covering the fallout and covering, you know, follow up stories about what happened. And maybe that weekend is when I really started to allow myself to make it personal. And I still, you know, 
process it, I still am thinking about how I protect my mental health, even, you know, coming to the one year anniversary. I think journalism wise, though, we just have to be rooted in the truth. And even in addition to January 6th, there have been a lot of things that have happened recently, I would say over the last year or two, that have caused journalists to have to think about what are our guiding principles? What is our North Star? Because the traditional way of thinking about journalism, you know, being objective and letting each side have its say and making sure that you're perceived as this like neutral entity, which none of those are in and of themselves problematic. But if your North Star is the truth, then if one person's telling the truth and the other person isn't, then if your North Star is the truth, then you can't be objective then you can't let each side have equal say. Then you can't be a neutral observer and allow someone to lie without calling them out as a lie. So us journalists have had to think about, is our North Star the truth or is it something else? Because, and I personally try to make my North Star the truth, but you know, journalism is still an institution that has been slow to change, Because of how highly politicized our nation is, there are people who don't want truth as the North Star because it doesn't serve them in their political interests or them in their motivations, going back to what we talked about at the very beginning about part of political journalism is understanding the motivations and the experiences and the goals that people in power have. And so if you're not served by the truth, then what serves you is to attack the truth tellers or what serves you is to get truth tellers, put them on edge about what telling the truth requires of them. So it's been a work in progress for, you know, traditional journalism. And I think we're still figuring out and trying to strike the right balance. You know, I don't want to be perceived as someone who chooses sides. That's not my goal. I don't want to be perceived as someone who, you know, is not objective. That's not my goal. But I struggle with, well, what happens when just by telling the truth, someone accuses you of choosing sides or not being objective, then what do you do with that? In January 6th is just one example of what has caused us to have to grapple with these realities in being a journalist today. And what does that mean? And and how we might have to shift if we want to not just be good at our job, but if we feel like preserving our democracy is another North Star. And if you ask any journalists going back to, again, our founding fathers, they thought a free press was essential to preserving this democracy that was the fabric of of how our nation came to be. Ben Franklin and George Washington and all those folks, you know, felt that a free and open press was needed for this democratic experiment we call America. So again, if that's one of our North Stars, and we always talk about founding fathers and what does it mean to be America and proud to be an American and the greatest democracy that ever lived, but then the same people who say I'm a patriot and care about 
being strict constitutionalists also are some of the same people who criticize the press for speaking the truth. So it's, it's not easy answers, but I think the longer we kick the can down the road of really deciding what our North Star is, our democracy continues to look more and more like it's on thin ice. And January 6th is just a symptom of that. I agree. And again, this is stuff we've talked about on the podcast about the the sort of evolution of what's going on with the rules which we do our jobs and the ethics that we apply to what we do. This isn't something we're going to answer today. And, you know, this may, may be something we're not going to have an answer with, you know, ever. I think there are a lot of journalists who are, who are where you are at, who are trying to figure out what is it that's driving me? What is what is my responsibility? And this idea that, you know, you just present both sides and then you just move on to the next story. You know, you're not serving your readers. You're not serving the cause of democracy. Tia, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking some time to, to recall this, which, you know, I, I can't imagine that this is particularly a pleasant experience to recall. But I, I think you did a great job of putting it in a way that we sort of understand as journalists what which you had to deal with. And then, you know, here we are a year later. We're still covering the story, but in different kind of ways. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I appreciate it. We're going to rerun this episode, but I did want to bring you back and sort of see how you've been, what have you been up to the last year, and just maybe sort of get a couple of thoughts since we're almost at the point that it's a two-year anniversary of January 6th. So what have you been up to since we last spoke? Well, it's been extremely busy because Georgia remains kind of at the center of politics nationally. So two years ago on January 6th, Ossoff and Warnock had just won their Senate runoffs and couldn't even celebrate because then the insurrection happened. So it just so happened we're talking the day after Warnock won his runoff again for a full six-year term. So it's kind of a full circle moment because it reminds me that like two years ago when Warnock won his runoff, there was like tragedy that followed immediately after. Whereas, you know, nothing of that is expected to happen. And so there's actually a celebratory period after the runoffs that didn't really happen two years ago. Yeah. The episode that we published last January, of course, we, we talked about the fact that you were on Capitol Hill on January 6th, 2021. And you had a few thoughts at that time about your experience and how you felt about it. Have things changed much over the last year? As you know, how have, how's your perspective of it changed? My perspective changed not on a personal level, but what has provided new perspective over the past year is the House did its series of committees, that House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack. And I went to every single one. It was important for me to attend every single hearing. Number one, because as a Georgia reporter, there were a lot of kind of Georgia threads in those hearings, but also just kind of, I just was committed to kind of hearing all the new information that was shared, there was so much new footage, new insight. We heard from officers who fought rioters that day. We saw, you know, never before seen video of how lawmakers 
were conducting themselves that day and the discussions they had and hearing from the Secret Service and people who were in uh, then President Trump's inner circle. So it really has provided new insight, new perspective to further shape what actually happened that day because like my vantage point was very limited. Like I know what I went through, but I had no idea all those other moving parts that were happening that day. And it quite frankly, the new information, of course, like gives us a fuller understanding of what happened, but it's also like the more I see what was happening, the scarier it is, the more of an understanding that I have of how close, you know, we got to even more bloodshed, even more violence. And it was already a very violent day. You know, the officers that were involved just got their congressional gold medals earlier this week. That included the family of officers that died, you know, in the days after the insurrection, including a couple who died by suicide and they had to fight to get that labeled as a line of duty death. So, you know, there's still a lot to unpack. It's something that's gonna be with me forever, but the new information has definitely rounded out what I think about that day. I know that you've spoken at other to other news outlets and things. What do you say about the work you do? Well, you know, it's been interesting because Georgia, because it still remains such a focus in national politics and just now had another nationally watched Senate race. You know, I don't think I have to convince people how important Georgia is. They seem very convinced on their own. You know, it's funny. People don't know. Not everyone knows that, like, I not only like covered January 6th, but I experienced January 6th. So sometimes when people find that out, they're quite amazed. And, you know, as I speak, not just like when I'm in my reporter hat, you know, officially reporting or giving commentary, but like if I'm speaking to students or things like that, when they find out that like I was actually there, there's a lot of curiosity naturally to understand my experiences. But I will say in general, I think you can't live through that and not have like a new appreciation for American democracy, but also a new appreciation for the fragility of American democracy if people decide they want to try to dismantle it. Like American democracy is really built upon a series of gentlemen's agreements, a series of like, you know, what we call the rule of law where people just decide like, once the law says it, I'm going to go with it. Or once the courts say it, I'm going to go with it. Like we see what happens in other countries where that's not accepted and it can easily go into chaos easily and quickly. And that's where we came really close in America to seeing very similar chaos that we consider a hallmark of undemocratic nations. And that's a little bit scary to know that just a few bad actors can really turn our democracy on its head. And it also, again, stresses the importance of the, the work that we do in trying to bring things like that to light and inform people of situations like that. One other thing I, I did want to ask you about, I noticed that you had a, a slight career change in that you're a host at C-SPAN now. Tell me about that role. 
don't call it a career change because I'm still with the okay. AJC, but like it's uh side hustle. Yeah, a little side hustle, if you will. So yeah, I um am a fill-in host for Washington Journal, which is that flagship call-in show that everyone, you know, that is kind of like that's when you think of C-SPAN, you think of Washington Journal. And it's been a blessing. It's definitely a new skill set because like as a newspaper reporter, you know, yeah, I do a lot of TV, but I literally just show up and answer questions or I do podcasts like this one and I show up and I answer questions. But in Washington Journal, people show up and look at me and say, well, what questions do you have? And just all the moving parts that comes with hosting a three hour oh my God. show. So... <laughs> And, you know, it's a call-in show. So it's really cool because you get to hear from everyday people who are just calling you up and trusting C-SPAN to give them a platform to weigh in on the news of the day or on politics. So it's an honor, but it's definitely a new skill that I'm learning. That's great. I did watch you one day. And I was like, hey, I know her and was really impressed. So I, I wanted to find out about that. Thanks again for coming in. Thank you for, you know, talking to us you know, last January and coming in today to sort of fill us in on what's next, or I should say what, what you've been up to. I hope you have a good holiday. Are you going to get time off or anything? Or are you still going to work? I mean, I'm still year? working through the end of the year because I, you know, Congress, government spending runs out December 16th as of now. We also have new members getting sworn in January 2nd and 3rd. So still a lot going on, but hopefully I'll take some time off in the new year. Okay. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.